0: But let's get right into it. Welcome, everybody, Uh, back to the RoyCast, the world's first succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Kate. Hello. And Gabby. Hey, guys. We are joined this week uh, by friend of the show and entertainment director for Harper's Bazaar, uh, Julie Kosin. Hello, Julie.
1: Hello, guys. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here for this particular
0: episode.
2: Yes, thanks for joining us. Yeah, we're really pleased to have you as well. Thank you.
0: Yeah, you kind of hit the jackpot with this one. (laughs) This is going to end up being like the episode everybody talks about, but it seems like the episode everybody's talking about so far. Although I think like every week has been kind of escalating, so there's definitely a a a lot of meat on the bone here.
1: The first three hour podcast recording for
0: Broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only that were true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Brenda, and I was like, wow, it's a lot. A lot for Julie. I clocked it.
1: We're at like 23 scenes. I have notes for every single one of them. Oh my
0: God. <laughs> Julie, do you actually work on the show? Or are you like the, uh, are you like an assistant director or something?
1: Oh, God! I wish. <laughs> I have a funny story about that where I went to see the New Yorker uh, TV critic Emily Nussbaum speak after her book came out. and somebody in the audience had worked on like with the prop team. and she had shouted the show out, and then um the person in the audience was like, "I actually work on that show. We had no idea what we were doing on the first couple of scripts, but it works now.
0: That rules. It was amazing. I saw that-
2: I saw that on Twitter, people talking about it. I think it was like like... Linda Holmes or, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So uh, do we want to just go kind of chronological with this? I know we have this, uh, honestly, we do have, this is more notes than I think we've ever assembled in like our Google doc that I'm looking at right now for this show. Should we just go kind of sequentially through it? Um, Gabby I think you added a bunch of notes at the top about you know just kind of the setting of the episode I don't know if you want to talk about that
3: yeah well I think the the settings have been crucial to sort of uh, elevating this season into something um, a little more shiny and we've talked about it but um, I was reading a vulture article about the you know the real life mansions and settings and production designs and and how they go about all of that and and, um, it talks about the production designer whose name is Stephen Carter and I thought it was interesting because usually um, what he says is that the search for the right location is dictated by what's happening in the script Um, but in this case it was sort of the other way around. So originally for this episode, Succession was looking at locations near Lake Placid, which is in upstate New York. Um, And they were going to plan to shoot a version of the Sun Valley Media Conference. Um, But they tend to, to try and stay in the New York City area, metro region, for shooting. And since they had all this equipment for this episode to haul... They reversed course and decided to shoot um, in a mansion in Long Island called the Autocon Mansion. And it's just like a hotel and um, I don't think that... Yeah, hotel and event space currently. So they said that they drove out to the location in the dead of winter... And the inspiration struck, and then they were like, "Well, we this feels like we're in Hungary, so let's pitch pitch it that it's in Hungary." And so, they brought that to the writers, and suddenly the episode was um, now set in this sort of grim Eastern European landscape. Um,
0: that's that's so nutty to me, um, but it also it also reminds me of this art this article I came across when I was uh, googling around and just found uh, like. Uh, for stories about, like, the Trump sons hunting and found that they have evidently also have, like, a massive hunting enclave in upstate New York that, like, uh, upsets their neighbors to no end. Oh, God. Of course <laughs> they do.
3: Yeah, that's not surprising at all. Um, yeah, I thought Tom described it pretty well when he called it um, war-torn, spooky, anti-Semitic, vamp- vampire-y, <laughs> authoritarian Europe. Also um, in,
1: like, a fake Vlad the Impaler voice. <laughs>
3: um so yeah just to wrap up what I, i was reading in that article um also something interesting that the episode was originally going to be titled um logan goes stalin so hunting wasn't even like originally part of the whole um you know sequence of events which um, is really interesting because it felt so so central to what happens. Um, and then another just one other tidbit that I thought was interesting is that the crew swapped out a lot of the mansion's big portraits and paintings and hung their own set dressing, which basically consisted of fake early nineteenth century taxidermy, <laughs> um, which I think um, you know just shows the incredible attention to detail that. Um, all of these um, set designers and um, production designers are, um, you know, trying to trying to get right. So yeah, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. And, and um, definitely the setting was crucial to the episode. I mean, it, this whole episode reminded me a little bit of not a little bit, but a lot of it actually, just kind of like how Brendan had the idea that, um, that Balter was sort of a, a, an unofficial sequel to Lifeboats. To me, it's sort of the unofficial se- sequel to Which Side Are You On? Which was also an episode with a very, um, you know, kind of brooding, haunting aura. And um, to see it kind of come to life like this, like in a very legitimately <laughs> creepy place, um, I thought was just another way that we see that this season Um you know the the sort of elevation of the material that can happen because the the character and personality development has been you know flushed out pretty well,
0: yeah, it was interesting what? to hear you make that comparison Gabby uh sorry, Kate, did you have something?
2: It was a stupid joke per <laughs> usual. just gonna say get get the, getting a little racist against Hungary, are we Gabby? <laughs>
3: my oh. husband's half hungarian
2: so you know i have a hungarian friend is he really yeah. well then you you get a pass of course <laughs> <laughs> just you calling it like a very scary place
3: <laughs> it is kind of a scary place they just banned gender studies in all of hungary oh jesus um,
2: and they're going
3: down the, the right wing uh xenophobe eastern european well now
2: all of europe like, like a walking r- Saudi Arabia,
1: I'm impressed Tom even knew, like, the political situation there because I didn't know that until you just said it. So,
0: well, you know, I'm sure he reads the journal and whatnot.
1: He was reading Condé Nast Traveller on the plane. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he's just, I like the idea that, like, yeah, he's maybe he's reading that because he's on the plane, but just the idea that his reading consists of basically the extent of what he reads is, like, just travel magazines, just airplane <laughs> magazines, basically. He probably subscribes to the awful, uh, what is it, Graydon Carter uh, newsletter that he just put out. <laughs> no one knows what I'm referencing, I'm sure. I know I what it, you're referencing.
1: I don't know the name of it. <laughs>
0: it's like air I don't know it's like airframe or something anyway uh, I thought that was a, that was an interesting comparison Gabby to which side are you on because that didn't occur to me at all because obviously the episodes are superficially quite different although there are similarities um, chiefly uh, the direction of uh, Andrew uh, who who um, is a career cinematographer who's um, directed a few episodes of this show including uh, which side are you on and this one and the previous episode Valter and I guess it's I guess the similarity I would point to is that it sort of builds to this um, climax that you think of as sort of an extended exercise in, you know, sort of absurdist farce. Um, In this one, it's quite terrifying uh, in a way, but it's also uh, sort of darkly funny, uh, the the bore-on-the-floor game that the episode climaxes with, whereas In Which Side Are You On?, it's just this protracted, agonizing uh, illustration of Ken's incompetence and poor planning as he fucks up his own coup.
3: Yeah, I mean, the other way that it reminded me of which side are you on, aside from um, just sort of this aura of this spectral Old Testament kind of creepy shit that's going on, um, just the the structure in general, the narrative structure, like, we have Logan in both episodes in sort of a weakened state of mind, maybe, maybe not, um, and he's growing increasingly agitated and he does have some reason to be agitated and paranoid. And which side are you on? Of course, it was about the vote in this episode. It's about the biography that's um, being worked on, on his, about his life and um, the Pierce material. And then, you know, he grows increasingly paranoid throughout the episode. In this episode, it's, um, a little bit emotionally heightened. And I think the, the setting does contribute to that. Um, more so than in which side are you on but the end is that it turns into this sort of violent and sadistic ritual when the paranoia reaches a fever pitch and he singles out each person one by one testing their faith and loyalty to him also while humiliating and essentially terrorizing them um so you know we have different antagonists in which side are you on ken is sort of the 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 villain for logan and in this episode it's different people but it's also interesting to see ken contrasted in this new role as sort of the docile son but also the dead-eyed son who doesn't really feel like he has anything to lose anymore and is also grappling with an immense amount of like grief and anger and guilt and because of that like we have mentioned a little bit in Balter and the end of and his behavior in the end of that episode he's sort of now able to call things out in a way he couldn't um, when he was the antagonist and not the Grim Reaper, like the way that he calls Jerry out for playing both sides, which is exactly what she was doing, which side are you on? But he couldn't say that because, you know, he was the person um, spurring the revolution, so to speak. And then in this episode also, the way he goes through Roman's phone and tries to um, nag Roman to the point of, you know, getting that confession out of him. It, uh, it's very interesting to see Ken positioned in a different way. That's a huge contrast, obviously, to which side are you on. But I still feel like the the development of, of the story was very similar.
2: Yeah, well, I think Ken is now ultimately like his dad's proxy, you know, and and will act as such from here forward unless there's something else going on with Ken that, you know, we haven't seen any indications of but just in terms of like you said um you know stealing roman's phone and even in the on the plane ride back um frank is able to suss out that ria i don't remember her last name but uh the ceo from pierce has heard about the deal and logan you know compliments um uh frank and even then Ken piggybacks on, on the compliment. Yeah. Like, yeah. Good work. You know, like he and dad are symbiotic now, you know, they're, they've joined forces and, um, yeah. I mean, he's dad's puppet now.
1: Kendall also seems to be thawing for me. Like in my notes, I have reheated corpse because like for the, he's like starting to come back with his like, um, corporate jargon. You see that in the, in the meeting at the beginning of the episode, like he's starting to seem like a real human being again. He he literally looks sick to his stomach at one point during Boar on the Floor. And part of me wonders if he went after Roman to like bring an end to it.
0: Yeah, that's a good observation, Julie. Absolutely. Especially like, I mean, you know, you think of the way that, you know, he's um, starting to in trying to serve his dad, you know, like sidling up to Roman, making a sort of uh, false attempt at, you know, connecting with his brother, um, you know, using, you know, this idea of, you know, reconnecting with his family as a tactic to um, uh, ally himself closer to his dad um, is, you know, really striking and something that, you know, yeah, you wouldn't have imagined the Ken we saw in episode one when he was just like almost mute and shell shocked um, the entire episode. Um, But Julie, I'm also wondering what you made of kind of Logan's state in this episode, because there's, you know, obviously one of the first things we see uh, in the episode is Logan getting a physical, getting a checkup. um, And, you know, there's implications that his health is still ailing him, even though he seems like he's at the top of his game and he seems more possessed of himself than he did in the first season, uh, that he's still not all there.
1: Well, he's on a medication that attributes like anxiety, paranoia, irritation, and I Threw that line away the first time I watched this episode, but then I was like, upon my second or third rewatch, I was like, well, wait a minute, maybe that is partially contributing to this total meltdown he's having later. I mean, I can see this meltdown happening at any point, but he's reached a point where he doesn't actually care what anyone thinks of him because he has all the power in the room no matter what.
0: Yeah, and there's this sense of like encroaching mortality, too, because another running theme throughout the episode, or at least something that's brought up a couple of times at the beginning and the end, is uh, this unseen uh, associate of his, someone named Mo, who's at his, on his deathbed in hospice care. And uh, he's asked at the beginning of the episode if he wants to go visit Mo, and he brushes it away. But by the end of the episode, uh, Mo has passed on. Um, but that is sort of, I think, something that's kind of runs together with the paranoia that Logan feels about the people in his immediate circle betraying him um, is that the people that he's familiar with are, you know, uh, not only betraying him, but, you know, dying off as well. And he feels increasingly, you know, isolated, which is what leads him to sort of act out as he does uh, towards the end of this episode.
1: Well, I love that scene on the plane where he looks at Kendall and he's like, was it you? And Ken looks so crushed. And Logan is, like, looking around and wonder, like, well, who could it have been otherwise? And now he's starting to realize that, like, there are snakes everywhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, to, to give some of the background for this, the, uh, the thing that really has everybody at loggerheads with Logan in this episode, although, of course, none of them will fucking say it to his face, is the acquisition of PGM or uh, Pierce, the sort of blue blood, um, you know, mainstream, respectable liberal media organization that Logan wants to acquire. Um, I don't know what everybody's thoughts are on, you know, what PGM is meant to kind of represent. As usual, it's an amalgamation of a couple of things. Mainly, I would say probably Viacom slash CBS and the, Sol- the Soulsburgers, who own the New York Times. Um, because there's this implication that not only do they have a respected newspaper, but they also have you a know, respected uh, you know, 24-hour news channel um, that they run. Um, Gabby, what did you think of uh, Pierce in this episode? Like, what, what did they kind of represent to you?
3: Well, I think what stuck out to me was Logan calling the Pierce's blue bloods. And we've talked about this quite a bit, especially in season one, um, that Logan grew up poor, and not only poor, but abused, and it doesn't take a lot to imagine that he had a very traumatic childhood, um, and I think we continue to see sort of this theme of Logan heaping contempt onto people that are just like him in the fact that they're very rich. You know, it's sort of goes to Austerlitz when Ken calls Logan out for being jealous of his own children. We talked about that briefly, but I think um, this story... And this sort of underlying, um, maybe unconscious confusion that Logan has over the type of people he wants his kids to be, um, the role he wants them to play in his life, the duality of who he is, where he comes from, and the versus the world he's had a hand in making um, is really starting to emerge um, as something that is incredibly difficult for Logan to articulate. And therefore, um, you know, he acts with violence and, and, you know, with hard-headedness, even with the stuff with Mo, you know, you can sense that there's some sentimentality there, something going on, and, you know, the fear of mortality as well. But then, you know, he just tells Carolina to send IT Sam to go look for clues. Um, you know, that's his way of protecting himself. So him calling the Pierce's blue bloods is pretty funny because, you know, blue blood, blooded people make up a lot of rich people, and that's a lot of the people in his orbit. But he somehow doesn't consider himself... Um, a part of you know that uh kind of pedigree which which he's not um and but it's does it really matter when essentially he's uh making the world in the same way that those blue-blooded people are making the world but i think it's a very very difficult thing for him to reckon
2: with yeah i think that's an interesting point i will say that i read the blue bloods comment even though it does in general refer to, you know, wealthy waspy people. Um, I read it more as like, you know, they're liberal kind of politics. I don't know exactly why, um, but it just, and and maybe that is the reactionary in him is he sees all rich people as different um, per se, whether, Uh, I guess especially if they, you know, uh, hold liberal values and things of that sort. But um, that spoke to me more just of him despising, like, the type of rich people they are. Right, because
1: they're snobs. They love Shakespeare Frank.
2: Exactly, yeah. Like, spoke more to his resentment of a certain type of rich person versus, like, you're, like, you hit the nail on the head, Julie. In terms of how I I heard it.
0: Well, it's it's it, well, I mean, it's both. I don't think both, that's really different right?
3: from what I was saying. Like I I'm not I'm not seeing the difference there. Like I don't think he, I think it's exactly about being that kind of rich person, being a like a, an old money person that he doesn't like.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I think it's 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 both. I mean, because. The bit another big animating force throughout, you know, this resentment and paranoia that's building in Logan throughout the episode is his fundamental mistrust of the people that are in his orbit, right? Because they're not people like him, who you know started from you know a hard scrabble background and you know clawed their way to the top. They're you know largely people who are you know from old money, from privileged backgrounds, and he just doesn't trust any of them. You know that's why he is not just lashing out at Roman at the end when he asks him about the price of milk. He's lashing out at you know Ray, who I don't. I don't actually know what his role is in the company, but you know he's a lawyer or something, and he's got a similar, you know, cosseted, uh, uh, frat boy blue blood background, um, that he just fundamentally doesn't trust. Um, so yeah, Pierce does represent this sort of liberal politics that he has a resentment of, and you know I think as a, you know, that plays into the discussion with Shiv about you know why she's kind of scared about uh, the possibility of you know uh, ATN also running that network. Um, but you know, mainly I think it all, f- it all flows together in this big stew, uh, for, uh, for Logan that boils over. But that's a really, uh, that's a really great scene at the beginning when, uh, everybody's kind of all together in the boardroom and like, won't let Logan know that they don't like the idea. You know, like Jerry kind of sarcastically throws out her objections to it, but everybody is just like, Oh yeah, I'm on board. And then it's just like heads sinking into their hands. As soon as Logan leaves the room. <laughs>
2: The like subtitles or closed captions say like all assenting. <laughs> Meanwhile, we know they all are opposed to me, this was i and this could have to do you know, with his medicine or or change in health, as we've kind of already discussed, but it seemed like um the the staff was more dif- more deferential, uh like in these scenes than they were last season per se. And maybe it's because uh, Logan has become, you know, more adversarial, that type of thing and, and, and paranoid. And so they're just responding naturally naturally, but I wasn't sure if it was maybe little shift in the tone um, or if anyone else thought that it, it was like, they were more deferential, more, more, a little more scared of him than previously, especially Jerry, Um, And even Carl, to some degree, the other folks are all new faces.
0: Well, I think they're just nervous. I think, you know, the the stakes weren't quite as high in the previous season because, you know, a, the company wasn't in this threatened position where there's this active takeover attempt. And also, you know, they weren't talking about an acquisition that's on the level of, you know, like they're talking about $20 billion potentially um, that could, you know, cut the company right in half um, if they if it doesn't go well.
2: Right, which to me would seem all the more reason to speak up to raise those issues. But but yeah, I, I, you know, it's definitely the stakes are higher for sure.
1: I mean, there's definitely a fear there because Logan was never that involved with any sort of the high stake issues like when the company had the massive debt last year. He was in a coma at that time. And so I think seeing the way that he, um, going back to the, conversation about which side are you on seeing the way that he can manipulate everyone around him they are afraid of being in his crosshairs
0: yeah i mean the big deal last season was the packet of tv stations which i don't think was as much as a billion dollars that they were talking about spending and again i think they were just in a in a much more confident position at that point um but you know now all of a sudden everybody's very uh, very upset about you know upsetting the apple cart
1: i'm just thinking like especially with Seeing Kendall in such deference to Logan, I w- almost wonder if they don't feel like they have any proxy for them anymore. Like they're he like Logan is going to take everything out on them as opposed to Kendall because Kendall is his lapdog now.
2: Yeah, I can see that.
0: Well, I don't even know who would have been the proxy in the first <laughs> place. If it if it would have been Ken, um, you know, in the past, it, you know, it may have been Jerry as somebody who at least had the ear of. Yeah, maybe you're right in that sense. As I'm thinking about it, because I think Jerry, you know, could at least talk to you know Ken and Rome about this stuff. But now there's really this sense that you know if you say anything negative, it's it's going to go straight to Logan, um, and the wrath is going to come down on you. Uh, we did touch on uh, when we were talking about Pierce, uh, the family's love of uh, the Pierce connection to Shakespeare Frank. Peter Friedman, who is who's back in this episode, Gabby. I know he's your favorite. Do you want to talk about the Thank return of Frank?
3: God, yeah. I'm so re- I'm starting to get a little antsy. I'm just like I need my my Peter Friedman touchstone. I mean, he's just the most down to earth, and and whatever his intentions are and his dirty doings. I mean, he's genuinely a likable guy. And the whole irony of it is that like <laughs> they want to bring him to the retreat because he is more likable to people that they need to impress. And it just makes the family's contempt for him very humorous. Like Roman threatens to quit. Um, He's like, you know, I'll be, I'll be out of here, you know, back to my office, but I'll be out. And then Ken calls Frank power hungry, status obsessed, avaricious. So yeah, they don't think very highly of him, but, you know, I think that goes to sort of their ability to assess people's character. And also, you know, the, tension between logan and frank which has been ongoing since the pilot clearly you you know nobody wants like julie said nobody wants to get any in logan's crosshairs. so um you know just to shit on frank he's a very easy target for for them to project their aggression on because he doesn't really fight back and you know it it doesn't seem like he doesn't fight back because he's weak but just because you know he feels like it's it's futile to fight with these people um and i liked that he was asked to do the toast at the dinner party um again he speaks well um you know he's a little bit more um in touch with the human side of things and the rest of these characters so you know he's asked to fill these roles and then um you know they they tend to just um try and shut him down but yeah, I think he plays a pretty essential role in Logan's life. He has for a very, very long time, and I'm happy to see him back. And I think at the end when, you know, Jerry's questioning him for accepting the job um, and he says the, you know, moths to the flame thing, I think that pretty much sums up our whole idea about why Frank keeps going back to this family over the course of, you know, all these episodes that, you know, it's just what feels right to
2: him. Um, he just can't really help it. Well, and Frank, and which side are you on as we all know was the first to exactly. Uh, but, and so like my I, I love him from you know there forward. he has my heart. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I also enjoy seeing the character and I think his name was in the title credits even the last episode, so I've been eagerly anticipating his arrival. Yeah, it has been in the title credits since the
3: since the premiere. And so Okay. Yes. I was waiting. Um, but this was a this was a very good episode to bring him back for. Yeah, I mean, he seems to be pretty much still filling the same shoes and playing the same role.
0: Well, he <laughs> he's I... kind of a he's kind of a functionary, right? Like he's right. somebody who just kind of belongs in this world. We talked in our episode with Isaac about how he's a very kind of like Shakespearean figure, somebody whose, you know, allegiance is to, you know, the the nation, or in this case to the firm, you know, more than it is any one particular individual. He serves this role where he has kind of this servile nature, but he does have this strong allegiance, and it seems a form of love, you know, for the family and wants to, you know, do right by the family, by Ken and Roman, not just Logan. Um, But uh, I I like the detail that uh, he's gifted a watch that's inscribed with the lines of that Tennyson poem "Ulysses," some work of noble note may yet be done, which is a poem all about basically just like not letting old age claim you and remaining vital into your uh, twilight years. Um, so that's kind of a I thought I thought that was befitting, you know, the way they kind of describe his character as what's the great nickname they give him? Boar the doll. Boar
2: the doll. Yeah. Yeah. It- it's- it's also funny that they, you were talking how he's very Shakespearean, that they actually point out and call him Shakespeare Frank. <laughs> and that's the first time I think the show actually references Shakespeare, like, as... By you know, name, yeah. A, yeah, the author. Obviously, they've, you know, Lady Macbeth, there's been a ton of references to the various plays, but...
0: There is um, literally a Hamlet joke in this episode. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and the Hamlet.
2: It's yeah. getting more, like, we,
3: we talked about it, obviously, and everybody's talked about it, people who were early adopters of the show, that it's a Greek tragedy, it's very Shakespearean, um, but it seemed like um, it was more, like, simmering under the surface, whereas in, in this season, I feel like they're in a position where they can sort of um, be a little bit more on the nose about it, and it works, um, just because they've already established those dynamics and, and the personality so clearly. And Frank believe- is just...
1: The antithesis of Logan because Logan walks into the room and toasts to our top team and you can see everyone looking around like that's the lamest thing you could have said right now. Right. So Logan comes back and when he wants to give a toast again, he's like, Frank, you handle it. And Frank's like, old friends, like he's got that sentimental bit to him. But at the same time, this is like something that's been sit I've been sitting with for a while. I just feel really discomfited by Frank. And I think it all goes back to Roman's sort of like deep distaste for him it's it it, to me at the beginning it felt like oh roman doesn't like to be babysat by frank but i'm starting to think there's something under the surface there and i'm turning into a bit of a conspiracy theorist
3: well i don't know if i'd go that far but i for the first time that in this episode i was sort of like hmm, that didn't seem like frank is when logan brings up the thing about the girlfriend and palermo and You know, and then he makes the joke at the end about needing to kill a guy in Palermo, which I think was a joke. But it was the first time that we sort of see kind of the more unsavory parts of someone like Frank.
2: But it's everyone
1: on the board. It was Carl, too.
3: Yeah. I thought it was funny in the end when uh, Jerry asks Frank, like, is that what you expected? And he's like, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, even going back to the poem, brendan about mortality um, when they're sitting at the table and Logan's kind of making excuses for his behavior and he's like you know it's the meds and the jet lag and Frank's like oh yeah the jet lag totally gets me too like <laughs> regardless of it's almost feels like Frank can I don't know has a little bit of an outsider's perspective but he humors the family he humors Logan for reasons that aren't necessarily entirely clear but you know the moth to the flame thing seems to be a pretty pretty apt explanation.
2: And the juxtaposition of like the, the bore on the floor evening, um, which during the entire time I'm watching, I'm thinking these people are better fucking quit. Like, I mean, who would subject themselves to this? And then Frank, the next day <laughs> accepting the job. And, you know, as you mentioned, Jerry, like being like, are you sure you want to do that? I was just thought it was really funny. um, a funny moment that like Frank would accept after like the the, the horrifying evening that they had the the night previous, not to go too far into that, but
0: well, they're all making like seven figures. So keep that in mind.
2: And Jerry's
1: so good at playing both sides, but you can tell that that why was like pure emotion. (laughs) And you rarely see that from her, but even she's like, the money is not worth it at this point.
0: Well, speaking um, of money, we...
1: sorry, Brendan. what were you going to pivot to?
0: I th- I think you're pivoting away from where I was going. Uh, but that's fine because let's uh let's go that direction instead, please.
3: <laughs> you mean Connor?
0: Absolutely.
3: <laughs> I'm not paying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Clutching his uh Bell's two-hearted ale in his hotel kitchenette.
2: Oh God, am am. What's the line when Shiv asks him, you know, what they do with rich people in jail? And he says, oh, come yeah, on. Yeah, they
0: let him out early to avoid litigation. Litigation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: to mitigate litigation.
3: Oh, God. Right. And the way that he's, he, like, he's calling, um, you know, he's, he's looking down <laughs> on the, the elites <laughs> while standing in the penthouse and Shiv kind of calling him out for that. But it's very funny. It's very reminiscent of, like, what Trump supporters talk like, you know, like, right, Oh, like, totally. De- and his surrogates talk like, you know, the elites. It's like, you are the
2: fucking elite. Right. And, the, yeah, and you're then. You're
0: literally higher than the elites. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then Shiv pointing it out and him kind of condescendingly responding, I have a really smart younger sister, don't I, Willa? <laughs> he's so <laughs> condescending to Shiv in
3: that scene. You don't hyper decant?
2: Like, he looks
0: Oh at my her, God, the hyper decant she's, <laughs>
3: so, she's so uncultured and green. Like, he's like. As he pours himself a
0: pitcher of Burgundy from a Cuisinart.
1: (laughs) She She hands him a bottle of wine. He's like, okay, thank you. Like... Like he was <laughs> insulted by her. Yeah, name, yeah. I guess.
0: Like, well, right, well, no, guys. cause the exchange is like, he hands, she hands it to him and he goes, what's this? And she goes, Oh, you know, whatever. And he's like, okay, thanks. Like neither, <laughs> like it's like, it's purely like a ceremonial bottle of wine. Like a, I'm sure like a thousand dollar bottle of wine that she just picked up on her way in just to have something, you know, to do with her hands. Uh, but yeah, the hyper decanting bit is just, I'm so delighted by that. I'm, I'm even more delighted by the fact that it turns out to be um, a real thing, if not like a common thing, than something that another rich psycho thought up at some point. Um, because there was another piece this week where uh, somebody searched around and actually found, yes, yeah, some Silicon Valley guy who came up with hyper decanting. Uh, just unbelievable.
1: It's not yeast. <laughs>
0: I do sometimes drink out of one of those giant art pitchers, but, you know, with, whatever's at hand. Uh, we do uh, get to hang out with, not just Connor, but we get to spend a little bit of uh, more time with Willa in this episode. Although, um, I don't know. Uh, what, uh, Julie, what did you make of uh, the time we spend with Willa in this episode? Did we learn anything new about her, you think?
1: I don't think we learned that much new about her. Like, everything she said felt predictable to me, actually, and I Every time we went into that bar, I really wanted to go back to Hungary because it kept cutting between it a couple of times. Um, I think the only thing about those scenes that actually got me was the fact that Connor ultimately posted the video anyway because he's been such a sort of uh, under-the-radar guy, just pops in, says something really bizarre and pops back out. But now what he's done is going to have actual consequences for the family even though they weren't acknowledged in this episode at some point we have to go back to the fact that he did post the video he is a national laughing stock Shiv failed Logan it's going to be really interesting
0: that's right Shiv the fail daughter she does She does not accomplish what she sets out to in this episode although the one detail I did enjoy about Willa in this episode is that when she uh, shows uh, Shiv the video on her phone she says that Connor looks cute in it and, and where that he loves about- the
3: project.
0: Which I thought was interesting because it's like, is there some Stockholm syndrome setting in here? Because the last we saw of them last season, it really seemed like she had just like, you know, the contempt had just been building with all those months out in the desert. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe she's a bit happier now that they're back in New York.
1: Right. They're in New York. She can work on her play like she's yeah, with her people in the scuzzy bar she
3: does say we support each other's dreams which right could be, yeah could be self-serving but it just seemed like she's maybe developing like an actual fondness for
1: him but i also yeah, love that my- she does everything she can to avoid ever answering a question when she yeah. is like how do, what do you
0: make of this and she's like
1: um i have to go bye like very few yeah, people can pull that off in
2: real life
0: he's the she, smartest member of that family in that sense
2: Seriously. Yeah, I I thought that I came away thinking that her and Connor have developed a relationship, um, albeit, you know, probably some self-serving nature to it, but they seem to have genuine affection. And also, I was really impressed, similar to what you're saying, Julie, that she doesn't answer the question. She wasn't intimidated by Shiv at all. And everyone's intimidated by Shiv. So... Um,
1: it felt like a contrast from Austerlitz, I think. Like she's starting to get comfortable with this family. Ah, and like knows so how much to play it <laughs> uh,
0: We also get to see Shiv hook up with a hot, very dumb actor guy who gets all his news from comedy. Um, that's about as much as I took away from that subplot, but I did think that was a funny line. She was
1: so revolted by him offering her weed that that the do you want to hit the resin at the bottom? And he's she's like absolutely not. It was just very yeah, reminiscent the of scenes she, I've seen play out in real life.
3: Even the way she was looking at his apartment, which was a very nice apartment for New York City,
0: uh, like a, work, <laughs> yes! a
3: working actor, she was low key, kind of like eyeballing it, like it's the.
0: Gabby, you know what it is? It's the picture of like Hillary walking into like the yeah. kitchen. <laughs> it wasn't
1: even. It wasn't even
3: a hot couch. Like I would have. Like it was a nice apartment. <laughs> but that's so on the on point, Brendan. Wow. <laughs> I love that photo.
0: <laughs> oh, it's sort of the greatest. Oh yeah.
3: Man. I mean, she's just turned into just a real fucking asshole. I mean. The stuff with Tom is getting to be kind of unbearable, Um, just the way that she is flagrantly not only just, you know, straight up cheating on him, but, you know, calling him her meat puppet and her deputy, like, go rally the resistance for me. I mean, this is getting kind of gross.
0: That was and that was pretty rough. Yeah. He's just that's somebody I rough. work for. She's just like all exactly. but she's just like actually ordering him around, right? Like just giving him orders. She's like, just kidding, but not really in the same breath, you know, like there's no pretense to it. It's just like I'm giving you a direct command.
2: And the task was like just so abhorrent. Like I mean, and so scary to approach Logan. So scary that she won't even fucking do it as the daughter, you know. I was really also disgusted by that and just thought what a fucking asshole all these kids except Kendall. <laughs> just, little Ken. uh, you know, no, Kendall's also obviously an asshole too. I can no, but know. um but but yeah, like just just really heinous. These people are... And maybe this, you know, also will lead to kind of the tonal shift maybe in season one, season two. But, um, yeah, they definitely seem to be leaning into that kind of more absurd uh, total pieces of shit and and less, like, room for... um, E- empathy for them per, per se.
0: Well, except for Connor, who is uh, revealed that he's willing to go to jail for his beliefs, so he's kind of a civil <laughs> rights icon now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we should we should get into Tom because that'll take us back into the main plot of the episode uh, where uh, Tom in this episode is sort of recruited. Uh, Voluntold by uh, uh, Carl and Jerry to approach Logan at the dinner and express the uh, will of the uh, or the sentiment of the top team that they do not approve of the pierce merger and everybody has everybody has concerns basically and there's just a there's a lot of choice dialogue in that exchange but uh, my favorite bit is when jerry goes you know that's where heroes are born tom on the battlefield he goes it's also commonly where they're killed jerry
1: <laughs> and i love that tom is also like playing into like he's starting to realize he's buffoonish um at one point um Carl's like you're articulate, you're a fine mind, you're a strong leader. He's like I'm articulate. I'm so flattered. I'll just walk into this machine gun nest. Like he can't even <laughs> handle the pressure <laughs> anymore.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and again, he's kind of self-aware instead of buying into the ego stroking which maybe old Tom would have done. Mhm. Or old Kendall.
1: Yeah. For mm, sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, the bit where I think you know Jerry goes like, you know, you're like you know, your family, he likes you, and, and Tom's like, he once called me the cunt of Monte Cristo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the writing in this scene was spectacular, in my opinion. Yeah, that,
0: that's a very classic, like, thick of it, Ianucci Armstrong insult. <laughs> There's a was, lot of a lot of good lines there.
1: I think uh Jerry is the only person who can use the word joshing without causing everyone to erupt into laughter. It's just a testament to how close you are as a family. Nobody would even describe Tom as a member of the family um other than probably Shiv and cousin Greg.
0: Yeah, except right before you ask him to do something.
1: <laughs> and then Carl needling him at the table a million times afterwards like I was feeling oh God. so anxious
2: for like Tom poking him in the situation. shoulders do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> A quick, quick call back to Jerry having called Shiv. Did you guys make anything of that? Um, Because I was like, that's interesting, Jerry calling Shiv and letting her know about the PGM acquisition unless Jerry knows that uh, Logan has named her, or I don't know. Did anyone find that kind of just, or why would Jerry call Shiv besides that?
0: Uh, there well, could be an innocent explanation. I mean, Jerry's quite close to the family. And I mean, she was at the, you know, she was at the Hamptons. So she's kind of aware of a lot of that. And it's not, um, you know, it's it's not impossible to me that she would have some information about, you know, the, the plans for Shiv. Um, she may also just be helping her keep tabs on the business. Um, I don't know if you need to get more conspiratorial than that, um, although it's certainly possible that this could be part of something Jerry's cooking up, as she does always seem to have, as Logan says, her own game going on.
1: Well, wasn't she specifically ignoring Kendall's calls in Which Side Are You On? Maybe I'm remembering wrong.
0: Mm, I, don't I don't remember so. that detail.
1: Or was it yeah, I Roman? Roman.
2: Roman was having trouble hearing him, if I recall correctly. No, it, um, yeah, I think it was. Um,
1: maybe it was just like a dropped call. There's always somebody's trying to get on the phone with somebody else in both. There of those was scenes. Julie.
3: There was there was one moment when the the vote was just starting when Jerry's phone rings and she answers it and she's like, "I'm going to have to call you back." Maybe that's what you were thinking of. It could be like, that she, she like immediately yeah. hangs up. But I don't remember anybody specifically ignoring. Ken's calls
1: in that episode. Yeah. I I wouldn't be surprised if Jerry has some sort of inclination that Logan and Shiv are conspiring because she was I mean, according to Shiv, she was on the phone the entire time they met that morning about PGM. It wasn't just a phone call from Jerry, it was uh, Shiv heard the entire conversation.
2: Oh, I didn't have that takeaway. That's yeah. interesting.
1: She she specifically says I had Jerry on the line.
2: Yeah. No, you're right. She did. I, I just didn't hear it that way. That's, that's interesting. Anyways, but, I didn't... It's like another gut punch for Tom, too. Like,
3: you know, you're talking to the company lawyer about stuff that has to do with me uh, without, you know, talking to me about it first. Like, it's just... I don't know. I, I just feel like Tom is... Tom's continual cucking... Um, you know goes on undisturbed but
1: and it's every woman in his life too it's sid the next morning it's jerry going from your part of the family to actually i know your wife asked you to do this and if you don't you're gonna have to tell her like it's complete emasculation
2: (laughs) yeah and and logan i mean you know the male can do the cucking him Mm -hmm. saying uh you know i don't want to hear your mouth open until it's to say we have you have you welcoming a grandchild or are you shooting blanks that was yes. so the shooting blanks cruel
3: was Yeah, incredibly cruel yeah
2: oh.
3: um, especially oh, yeah. especially with with Logan knowing that Shiv is not going to be faithful
1: mm. I don't I don't know if I've had that takeaway that's interesting i never even thought about Logan knowing that
3: uh, Logan knows that she cheated with Nate, he knows what she's like. And I think that in episode 10, when they meet up in the car and sort of, um, have that unspoken resolution, looking at each other. I think that's in a way, and he says, you know, you made the right choice or he's a good guy or something. Uh... I think he knows that, you know, Shiv is a lot like him. He wasn't faithful that there's a good chance that, you know, whenever Shiv goes away for the weekend, Right. Um, the for the first time she goes away, in the words of Stewie, um in episode nine. Although this time it's when Tom goes away first. So yeah, I think I think Logan also knows that, so it's it's extra cruel.
0: Well, as Shiv said before, you know, shit happens with travel.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Travel. <laughs> what can you
0: do? Um and I thought one, the
3: decision w- just to wrap that up, I thought the decision to to tell him at the end, or at least um insinuate that she was going to tell him it's really interesting and um i know not necessarily everybody got the read from the final episode that the open marriage thing was really gonna be for real and um that you know she was gonna actually um posture like this is the kind of relationship she has she's Polly, you know um she said to the the hookup that you know it sounds complicated but it's not um And, you know, we have to remember that it's only been a few weeks since the wedding. And it's already, you know, she meets some guy in a bar and that's it.
1: She's Um, guilty, though. Like, there are tears in her eyes when she's hugging Tom. Like, she can't decide if she's doing the right thing.
3: Well, she knows she's not doing the right thing. But the thing I think that anguishes her so much is that she doesn't know why she can't. Um, Right. And, you know, that's a humanizing moment for Shiv and what's otherwise a very... uh, kind of villainizing episode for her
1: but is there any part of you of you guys that thinks beyond her feeling guilty about cheating it's also like she knows that she should not have put tom into the machine gun nest in the first place and she's just trying to prove that she can run this company and be a mercenary
0: well i think that uh, i think the thing that causes shiv pain specifically about that relationship um it's just the imbalance that's there and i don't think it necessarily has to do with yeah putting him through the machine gun nest in, in this episode it just has to do with the fact that she just doesn't think about him as much as he thinks about her and um she yeah uh you know cheats on him and screws around on him but she's never really been in a position to um fuck over somebody who cares about her as much as as tom does um, and I think that's that's the imbalance I think that she has a hard time mm. with just because she she can't get there with anybody, right? She can't get there for him, you know, in terms of being able to commit to somebody or really care about them like that and the fact that, you know, he cares about her that much and it's just, like, kind of inconceivable to her, I think is what's what's rough about it. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it.
0: Um, shall we touch on the uh, biography uh, real quick before we uh, just dive into bore on the floor? Hell um yeah. the The uh... sure. <laughs> The great opening scene of this episode with uh, Greg meeting with a journalist played by uh, Jessica Hecht, who you may recognize from uh, Breaking Bad and the underloved Amazon series Red Oaks. Um, a journalist, I think I saw someone somewhere, uh, suggest that she was made up to look like Maggie Haberman, um, but someone who's oh. writing a uh, a biography of uh, of Logan Roy. And Greg is there for, as he terms it, a pre-meeting to determine if he can meet, which I I, I just love that detail that Greg is thinking is, as his own assistant, basically. Um, he's serving the function of his own secretary to determine whether or not there's availability in his own schedule to have an actual meeting.
3: Yeah, he calls himself a time-pressed executive.
2: <laughs> I th- I think that's more him just trying to like, you know, flout whatever. But it, really, the pre-meeting is he he's not sure if he wants to betray, if if it's not a true betrayal, but betray confidences um, with the with Logan and the Roy family. My favorite part of that scene where she's like, you
1: have done a bunch of things. She can't even, like, flatter him. He's such a
0: goon. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Who does she play in Breaking Bad? I'm sorry. I don't want to.
0: She's, uh, she's Gretchen. Uh, Gretchen.
2: The woman that.
0: Walt's former business partner.
2: Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Perfect. I, I you knew I pay, knew. Yeah. But, okay. Grey Matter. voice is unmistakable. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Grey Matter. Yeah.
2: Thank you.
0: Um, but anyway, that kicks off this uh, another running thread of paranoia, where uh, Carolina reveals that somebody close to Logan has spoken to this biographer, but they don't know who, and uh, they have uh, <laughs> what do they call him Ratfucker Sam going through everybody's <laughs> personal emails to try to determine who might have spoken to him. And Greg knows it's just a matter of time before he's found out.
2: I I was. It also made me wonder though. Did somebody else, in addition to Greg? Speak to her. I don't know if you guys got that.
0: Sense. Yes, that's what they. That's yes, that's what they say at the end of the episode that the okay. person that Sam determines has spoken to the biographer is Mo uh, Logan's Mo, now yeah. Logan's now dead associate. Um, okay. So that so that that loop appears to be closed. I'm not. It's not clear if Sam um, got to Greg or just because Greg is far enough down on the list in terms of you know intimate acquaintances um, that he wasn't considered um but uh, it, it it seems for the moment that greg is safe
2: i had a totally different interpretation of the mo thing in that carolina scapegoating him because he died so that I, I don't think he did speak to her she I don't was think just, that would
0: that wouldn't make that wouldn't make any sense because i mean sam's going to go and look through everybody's emails either way
2: but she didn't know that until logan responded you know, as coldly as he did. I mean, that's just my take, you know, but I felt like she was scapegoating him. Let's, you know, and that to me was, uh, spoke to a larger conspiracy that there was someone else in addition to Greg and not Mo, but, um, I respect that we had different interpretations.
0: So that takes us basically up to bore on the floor, um, which is of course the, centerpiece slash climax of the episode where logan indulges in some ritual humiliation of i guess who he identifies as the three weakest links uh in his circle tom greg and carl um and in the uh in some interviews and in the sort of after the episode uh clip Jesse Armstrong talks about how, you know, Stalin was an inspiration for this episode. Gabby, you mentioned that they were thinking about calling this episode Logan Goes Stalin. Maybe a bit on the nose, but, you know, you get the general theme, right? Um, And there was this, yeah, there was this custom that, um, I don't know if anybody saw the movie Death of Stalin that Armstrong uh, collaborator Armando Iannucci directed uh, last year. Um, But, uh, you know, one of these dinners uh, that Armstrong talks about is depicted in that movie where, you know, they would, uh, they would, you know, Stalin and his his commissars would, you know, watch usually an American movie. They would watch like American Western, something like that. Stalin was very fond of silent movies and they would go have dinner. He would f- basically force everybody to drink to excess, you know, uh, get them to spill their, uh, their secrets, their intimate details, and then later use them against them. And then also indulge in some just sort of ritual frat boy uh, 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 roughhousing which is I don't know if it quite captures what we see at the end of this episode. You know, um, it's not because the game is something that you know not everybody is is in on. Right? There's a there's a, an element of just kind of ritual humiliation. Yeah, to it. I mean,
3: there's a total imbalance there that's like not necessarily can characterize it as fraternal.
0: Yeah, I got a I got a strong uh, frat boy vibe from uh from Ray the. Uh, um, yeah that Uh, guy yeah where
3: did he come from (laughs)
0: um which is uh, why i don't know
2: yeah there are a few new faces as as mentioned before but there's ray there's sam a few new folks
1: my favorite detail from that scene was one of them ushering out the waiters from the room like it was actually colin
3: who ushered them out which is so perfect such a like Perfect detail, because Colin really is Logan's true mercenary. Oh, it was Colin. All dirty work. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, his, oh. head of security. His, he cleans uh, everything his, his up. Stomach.
3: Yeah, that man. What has he seen? Like, very, very uh, creepy character. But yeah, takes care of Logan's main- business.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's also in this episode standing between Roman and Ken. And to me, Roman was like the stealth kind of um, center of this episode. Like, we've talked about how this is a big Logan episode. um, But Roman and Kieran Culkin's performance, I felt, was, you know, Obviously, we love Kieran Culkin. We love the character of Roman, and we've talked about episodes where he's been really strong. But this, to me, was his strongest performance on the show, and the one where you really most felt for what he was going through, and you know what kind of animates and drives him in terms of his needs. Uh, you know, his need to impress his father, his need to sort of prove himself against his brother, and just the. The way that he just absolutely slumps and falls apart when his dad calls him a moron at the very end, I thought was just kind of like the center of this whole thing um, where you see just like what is kind of behind all of this stuff. That's all of this spectacle and luxury that's, uh, you know, surrounds all this narrative. That's what's at the very center of it is that slump in his shoulders.
3: This was definitely... For me, the moment that Roman's are definitely cracked, like, all the way. Um, We talk about Kieran's incredible physical acting. And um, in this scene, after that moron comment, he, like, the look in his face was a face that we haven't seen on Roman before. Um, You know, genuine, genuine sadness. Um, I think it's the first time that we see Roman's hair messed up the next morning. Um, and Jerry, mm, yeah. needing, Jerry needing to tie his shirt and, or button his shirt, and he says he feels awful, and it's just not anything that we've seen from Roman before. Um, you know, he's he's definitely feeling um, desperate, panicked, um, and then you know the whole dynamic with Ken. Ken now kind of has this, um, you know, reckless attitude, this uh, drive, this instinct, and you know it, the the fight that they had with the phone. Roman was like looked like such a little boy like it just it definitely like harkened back some you know childhood dynamic of you know that younger sibling desperation
0: um, yeah the, and then, the body language of that yeah. fight I thought was incredibly specific to actual fights I had with my brother yes. uh, growing up yeah that was yes. it was so spot on it was such a it was such <laughs> a good recreation of that dynamic which is very real and I think a lot of people know very well
1: I think yeah. at that point he says, like, are you fucking joking? Give me my phone back. I've literally done that exact thing with my siblings, like, within the last five years. Like, as a full-grown adult. Like, it was perfect.
0: Yeah, yeah. the way he, like, kicks Ken in the ass yeah. as he's yeah. walking away.
1: <laughs> right. And, and yeah,
3: that's just, like, enough to get you through the anguish and pain of the rest of the episode. Is um, that, those moments of humor like that. that is funny. that the
1: first time we see Roman that close to tears? I think so yeah um, yeah because we've
0: seen him like humiliated anything. before we've seen logan like snap mm-hmm. at him but and you can tell just... that it bothers him but he usually like shrugs it off you know yeah, takes it on he somebody has... else
3: encourages like, and... for a second and like you know we've seen him punch people but like the sadness there is what really stood out to me
1: and him saying i'm not a moron is i think truly the first time he's ever actually stood up to his father every other time he's like immediately crumbling like i'm gonna walk right out of here back to my office earlier in the episode he has no stomach for it but he actually feels the need to defend himself in this moment
3: yeah and, and i think the way that logan humiliates roman in this episode which he doesn't do by doing you know bore on the floor which you know we can get into <laughs> why logan chose who he chose and how that all went down but um i think by not choosing roman for that more like overtly humiliating task um he still is a sadist and there's something about um the the privilege of his own kids that logan Mm -hmm. can't help but feel disgusted by um again it goes back to what i was talking about earlier and what we've been talking about with you know logan's complicated feelings about his own wealth and um, the way his kids have grown up versus how he grew up, and whether it's conscious or not, it's definitely affecting him. But um, yeah, this idea that Logan likes to quiz Roman on things that you know um, sort of uh, betray his you know complete detachment from the real world. So in the Thanksgiving episode, he asks him about the population in Indonesia and totally humili- humiliates him, and again calls him a moron in that scene. And the same thing with the gallon of milk, um, so a little Arrested Development uh, <laughs> vibe there with a, um, a way to sort of um, to, to prove how the ultra-wealthy don't know anything about living in the real world. But yeah, um, Roman is totally crushed, and uh, I think he's you
1: know reaching a breaking point. Wasn't the gallon of milk thing a talking point during the election in 2016? Didn't something to that effect come up with Hillary?
0: It's oh, been maybe. a thing before. It's been a thing a bunch of times. I remember there's the whole thing about, yeah, like, I mean, it's, you know, George H.W. Right. Bush, like, right. not going grocery shopping. Right? right.
3: It's a useful way. It's a useful uh, cliche, yeah, in that, in that sense to, to demonstrate, you know, out of touchness and privilege. Um, so I think Logan, you know, gets to Roman that way. And Roman's like, you know, he's shell-shocked by it because it's like this is how you raised me you know <laughs> you, you who cares you know i was raised to not care about the, go- the price of a gallon of milk or how many people live in a certain you know third world country
1: right it goes back right. to that central tragedy of not having any choice over the way you were raised or what you were born into even if in this case right. it's immense privilege
0: yeah yeah I'm, I'm thinking again about you know the comparison you made to episode six gabby And, you know, what we talked about when we talked about that episode was the way that the events of that episode seemed to kind of ripple outward and be magnified by this larger context around them, this context uh, in that episode of a, you know, of a terrorist attack where Mm -hmm. the maybe ultimately insignificant boardroom conflict plays out against this larger scale backdrop of violence um and the sort of portent of doom that hangs over it as a result and i'm just thinking about like you know the way that this this episode builds and it's very theatrical in this way succession is a show that draws a lot from live theater and it's very theatrical in the way that that scene builds and sort of transforms and takes on a life of its own until you're watching something that's very bizarre and you're thinking wow how did we get here um and it's, it's Exactly, this...
3: Brandon. Thank you for putting my words into into better words. It's exactly <laughs> it's just... <laughs> like, like what resonated for me between the two episodes.
0: And it's this it's this hermetically sealed thing where you know we talk about how the show often doesn't depict the effects of the Roy's actions, you know, at least directly on the sort of unseen people in the world, right? Like the end of Volter was an exception. The end of um, last mm-hmm. season's finale was an exception. Um, and but what the show sometimes does. Is show you how the experience of the people at the top um, are in, are are similar to the ones below them, uh, if only a few degrees removed. And what I think we see in this episode is how everybody is forced to live in this guy's head. There's no getting away um, from Logan's world. They all have to live. And the world he creates, literally for them, he is making them, you know, crawl around on the floor and, you know, he's throwing sausages at them. Everybody else, uh, uh, for all the other billion people in the world, have to live in the world that he helped make. And for them, it's just a little bit more immediate, a little bit more absurd and nightmarish.
1: That's such a great, like, depiction of it. And I also know that you guys on the podcast have talked about in the past how there's a, every episode feels like a more heightened surreality um, in, like, post-Trump era where we're all like is this actually happening um and i think it, for this episode in particular this was the moment this season where i was le- where i felt that the hardest
0: yeah just the the rolling you know just slowly amplifying absurdity of the whole thing is something that uh you know i mean <laughs> fuck it's great tv you know <laughs> there's not a lot of shows that can yeah do i that, mean that, that, that operate at this level
3: totally agonizing to watch but like, yeah. i loved every second of
1: it <laughs> see i felt kind of weird afterwards after watching it because i got a couple text messages from people like i could not stand sitting through that that was so painful
3: yeah i no, thought it here. was
1: complete shade and freud like i was and maybe this just makes me an evil uh, person i was <laughs> laughing the whole time i was like i was laughing but kind of what they this is kind of what they deserve like it felt like as, I was ripped by the drama. Of it. As, oh like, I no. couldn't
2: believe I, it was happening. As, as I, weird I was terrified. as terrified, I almost had to turn it off.
1: As and I weird as we it was, it felt like it. Like this has all been hitting this pressure cooker moment. Like we have been moving toward this, and you maybe you could argue that it came too soon or it didn't come soon enough. But but it felt like the the last two episodes have been building to something of this effect, and maybe even season one as well. Like it had to devolve into just. Total hysteria at some point.
3: Yeah, and I think a huge factor also is that if it was just Carl and two other no-name guys who were doing the, you know, the piggy stuff, um, it might not have hit the audience so hard. But to see Tom and Greg there, who've just been, um, you know, really <laughs> um, just brought down in so many different ways, and you know, we there's it's sort of taken on this archetype of of a. Uh, underdogs and outsiders even though you know they have their own ambitions as well um but to see them there just like really um was gutting and the way that um greg turned to tom and said please and you could see on tom's face just a moment where you know he knew he could rat greg out for talking to the biographer but he protects him and um that was really moving i thought um and it you know, showed me something to Tom there that, you know, it's just a reminder that he is capable of empathy. Like he didn't grow up, like we've <laughs> said, uh, like uh, all these broken brained people, um, you know, he understands what, what love is. Um, you know, maybe he has serious blind spots when it comes to it, but um, yeah, there was something about that moment there of, of, Protection that was really moving. And um, I don't know if you guys have the same read, but it was hard I, to watch.
2: Yeah. Yeah. As far as like, I mean, when Greg was first going to tell, well, when he did first tell uh, Tom about it uh, uh, during the hunting scene, I was like, oh God, no. I mean, the whole time I'm like, no, no, don't tell him. Yeah. But Tom What's... takes like this fatherly
3: tone with him at the end and he's like, Tom, buddy. Don't trust anybody ever. Right, right. Which is no, so cynical, but he's telling him the truth. Like you know, don't.
2: Yeah, and it and it was really touching. I mean, I'm sure you could find a cynical uh, point if you want, if someone were looking for it, but um, of why Tom might do that. But but yeah, I th- I thought it was re- the solidarity he showed and the. Like you said, the fatherly kind of figure um, protecting Greg was really was really touching as well. I
1: I, I want to make the cynical point because I think the entire exchange is couched in Tom asking Greg, are you nervous about what we did in cruises? And Greg going what we did in cruises. And it immediately brings back to the forefront of Tom's mind like, oh, shit. Like, he can get me just as bad as I can get him. And if he goes down, I go down. So I'm going to preserve both of us in this moment. And don't get me wrong. I do think that there is obviously a real affection between them. But it's, no, that's a really good it's point wrapped let, yeah. up in um, a right. self-preservation tactic as well.
2: Yeah, Julie, thanks for – I had no- noted that. Thanks for bringing it up. It was pretty funny how Tom and Greg quite, see the cruise situation – Pretty differently.
1: Greg is just getting so much smarter. Like he is watching and learning and paying attention and like he's picking up on it really well.
2: Oh, baby. Which... he's He's been picking up on it. Keeping those copies. Uh, letting Kendall know he knows he went out the night before in the wedding. And Greg's no dummy. I mean, like, he, he might play play the role as one.
1: And I, I, again, maybe this is just me taking a super cynical approach, but going back to that scene of them in front of the fireplace on the floor, I mean, could you picture anyone else but Greg in that moment? Like, that's part of it for me is maybe why I didn't feel so bad for them. Tom, absolutely, because he's one of my favorite characters, and I hate to see him hurting. But Greg, like, made sense on the floor there. And when he asks Tom, like, please... I almost wonder, like, could, could any of them imagine anything worse than being in that moment? I wonder what, like, the next level could have been for them.
2: Brendan, I'm wondering, we both kind of, or, or we've all, all the ladies here have kind of spoken on our thoughts, you know, in regards to how we felt during the ball on the floor scene. I'm I'm wondering, like, how you internalized it, how, what, what were you thinking and feeling during that scene? And...
0: Uh, i mean you mean regarding greg and tom
2: well greg and tom and like the whole situation was it funny or was it terrifying and borderline had to turn it off was it i mean for you how how did how did you just feel in general i guess
0: um well you know i felt this i reacted kind of the same way i do whenever i see this show just kind of you know, pop off like it's doing. I'm hooting and hollering at the TV um, because I'm watching such, you know, great great (laughs) stuff play out. Um, You know, (laughs) I I basically can't be, like, uh, amused or terrified in that moment because I'm just like, oh, man, this is just... This is so good.
1: (laughs) It's like watching the Super Bowl in my house. All my friends... Like, I have a couple group of friends who come together, and we just scream in each other's faces. Like, I... I loved it. I could not get enough of it. Oh, and i
2: it was so painful. Feeling, hor-
1: feeling horrible about that.
2: Really so painful. No, it's,
3: it's, it was really, really so well done. But yeah. Credit to everybody but for any, editing, the directing.
1: Any other show, I don't know how they could have pulled something off like that. It could have devolved into... <laughs> bad, ridiculous, jump the shark so quickly. And I mean, it's all grounded in Brian Cox's performance, obviously. I mean, all the performances. Mm -hmm. But he is the ringleader of this circus. And he he played it through, like, beautifully. Like, there's a scene that I also have discussed with a few people where he's just lightly shoving the waiter out of the way, like, excuse me, like... He is not used to anything being in his path, including, you know, random people. And it's just so indicative of the kind of person he is and nothing is going to get in his way
0: yeah yeah I mean like I'm, I'm being a tiny bit facetious when I say that I'm just hooting and hollering the whole time although I, I do it sometimes hoot and holler. Um, but I mean you know this this when you think about we talk about like yeah what other show could do this I mean really there's very few shows that have like a, a process to like the way that they're sort of written and built and uh, directed like succession does where scenes really build in this way and that detail you talk about Julie where he's shoving the waiter out of the way I mean like that's exactly the kind of detail that you don't really get in shows that are more like tightly scripted and choreographed that don't allow for the kind of, you know, not just improvisation, but this kind of collaborative process where the scene is being built You know, by everybody there, by the directors, you know, by the crew, by the actors, crucially, you know, as they go. That's the kind of thing that comes up that you just don't get from from most TV because, you know, most of it's done on the page and, you know, they're trying to get through the day. You know, obviously, Succession has a lot of luxuries in terms of like this great HBO budget, and especially this season um, in the way that they're they're given time and space to play with these things. But I mean, yeah, like this is just it's just not the kind of thing that happens on television a lot of the time. And uh, yeah, it's a it's 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 a lot it's a lot um i did want to just fully touch on my thoughts on the the greg and tom situation because i argued with some people on twitter about this because i saw everybody going oh tom and greg you know they're so cute they're so sweet and my take on that is that everybody is setting themselves up to look like absolute fools when one of them inevitably sells the other out which is going to happen Um,
3: i mean both can be true brendan both can be true (laughs)
0: You know, yeah stuff stuff can be two things uh, but also i mean or four uh, yeah i mean but i mean i think kate said solidarity and i think that's i think that is really the point to take away from this is not just that you know these guys might have some fondness for each other i mean maybe sure but i think more interesting and more crucial to what the show's doing is just that they are two guys that are in a very similar power situation mm-hmm. they are They are these guys who are like as close as you can be to being in the family without really being in the family. And so they're they're for both of them. They're the only person that they can really communicate to on that level or that really, you know, understand them on that level. And so whether that means you can totally trust the other guy or not, there is a kind of bond that just happens naturally there. And that the two of them are aware of. So I think in that split second for Tom, where he looks at Greg and you can really see like something in his eyes where he's he's thinking about it. He's really thinking about it. Um, But, you know, he maybe he doesn't have time or he forgets about it or he just or he just brushes it off. Um, and I'm not even sure if he knows why he makes that decision, but he does.
1: I think Tom is also just maturing this season like he's telling Greg, you know, trust no one. Um, last episode, he gave Shiv some really good advice about, um, you know, spinning the plates, which she ultimately didn't take, then that could be to her detriment. But I don't know if that's maturity or just not a side of him we've seen before. But in addition to his buffoonishness, like he's clearly giving things some thought. He's not running on pure animal instinct.
2: And also sticking up to Shiv, um, yeah. you know, in, the, in one of the final scenes, um, I just wanted to add, and this is just a little little note that was fun for me, but how Brian, Brian Cox, Logan kept referring to the retreat as a morale booster, <laughs> and like, what? Oh, yeah. it, and <laughs> every building. time he said that, Jerry's like, yay,
1: morale. I'm sorry. I'm such a Jerry stan. I cannot
2: right and not brag
1: about her like jerry's
2: fantastic (laughs) and uh she was in a watched a law and order the other day that was like maybe 25 years benjamin bratt um i was gonna call him lenny briscoe fuck uh jerry orbach anyways that J. smith cameron was in it was (laughs) it was great um but jerry's fantastic but like even like it's just so funny the morale and then what this actual retreat devolves into which is like i mean if that's not the opposite of morale or like the hell version of morale i don't i i don't know i mean um, when logan the- asks
1: um not it wasn't carl it was ray maybe to pee in the bucket and you there, you can see carolina's face in the background okay. like <laughs> hr nightmare pr nightmare like it like it. that's oh, not yeah. even the worst that it gets
0: yeah, and Ken's swatting Rome's phone away because he says, indemnification, dumbass. <laughs> you know, he's like, you can't record this.
2: <laughs> and I just wanted to point out, too, I know everyone, big Nicholas Braun fans and uh, Greg fans. Uh, do, did anybody else notice that he has dimples before this episode? Or was?
0: <laughs> what on earth kind of question yes, is that?
2: <laughs> I have, Kate, but... Still. It's a good question, Brendan. That is the type of question it is, okay?
0: This, this is I a family show, Kate. I
2: don't think I noticed that until you just said it. Well, wow. and it was only in the opening scene with the biographer that he had these little cutesy smirks, and I was like, oh, Greg has dimples, little Greggy. His cutie, cutie pie. His face, there's something about his face when they're,
1: like, about to go hunting and it's like it's like clearly very cold and he has his hat on and he looks so vulnerable and like not at all like he ever looks he's so serious i felt like such a deep amount of affection for him oh it was just this whole episode i'm sorry
0: (laughs) this is like hearing people talk about naming livestock they're just gonna get hurt guys
2: (laughs) no it's true I mean You're absolutely correct. And and I'm ready for for Shiv's downfall after last episode. I'm I'm sorry. I, Shiv's stand no longer. I mean, we always knew she was the closest to Logan as is.
1: Um, I, I love the parallel. Um, when first of all, her father just keeps hanging up the phone on her over and over again. <laughs> and um at, at this point in the episode, um When he he calls her to say, take care of Connor, and he hangs up on her, and Tom gets onto the couch next to her, and she goes, what is going on? It reminded me of the scene in um, episode six of season one where she's, again, like, what is going on with the vote of no confidence? Like, it is not going to be easy for her to get out of being out of the loop. Like, nobody really wants to bring her into what is going on despite the fact that, you know, she's ostensibly the heir to the throne. And it was just, it's just interesting to me. I keep picking up on these little moments that flash back to, you know, the season one version of these characters.
2: Yeah. And even that insult to Rome, I know Gabby had pointed out a few um, about Rome. You're a moron a few times that uh, Logan had, had called Roman out as well in season one with similar, uh, declarations but it also reminded me as a callback to all the many times that Lo- uh, that uh, Kendall was called out um by Logan um in season 1 and just how how you know they each responded so differently um Just to... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. no. I just
1: i I keep I think upon reflection, the episode, like the the whole scene when they're on the plane is my favorite my actually my favorite bit of acting from Brian Cox in this episode, um, despite the fact that the born on the floor scene is so amazing. but he he just looks so panicked and he keeps jumping around from, like, moment to moment and then you get also get that great moment from jerry when she's like i can't actually in this nation sadly halt the publication of a book yet and you realize exactly where all of these people are with you know their nation's values
0: oh yeah i mean there's a lot of um there's a lot of parallels to that throughout history obviously the most recent one i thought of was um uh roger ailes having gabriel sherman harassed during the reporting of um Uh, the Ailes biography loudest voice in the room where he really was like you know followed and stalked and harassed all (laughs) while he was reporting that book but of course that's been done many times
1: but that whole scene also I kept I think you guys mentioned this in last week's episode where um, Logan only loves his children if they're in deference to him and he, he keeps apologizing to Kendall which is so strange like I'm kidding, son, I'm kidding, like, when Kendall said, like, do you really believe it would be me betraying you again? Like, that keeps happening, and it's such a strange power play. Like, uh, Logan thinks if he keeps apologizing, then, um, you know, Kendall will sort of, be like, be lulled into a false sense of security or something. It's just very odd from what we saw in season one with the you're a fucking moron sort of situation.
3: I think Logan has a leash on all of his kids and, um, you know, he struggles with um, how close to have them and how much distance to have. And with Ken, clearly he's been um, completely, you know, stripped of any power, of any leverage, of any ability to uh, fight back. And he's also, I think, Logan um for as cruel as he is and um, sadistic as he is, I think he's still, you know, he, we've acknowledged that he needs his kids and um, Kendall is really in a position that's very dangerous. I mean, we didn't see much in terms of um, his emotional state this episode other than being sort of a uh, a puppet for his dad. But um you know he's using drugs he has a history of substance abuse he just killed somebody and can't talk to anybody about it he's severely depressed clearly like he's medicated i think there's um always been an element to logan that um he doesn't want his kids to die you know
2: um
0: Uh
3: He's not quite that cruel.
0: And, oh yeah. Um, isn't that a isn't that a line in like Austerlitz or whatever? It's like none of my kids, you know, have exactly. died or anything like that. And it's so interesting.
2: Yeah, a really good friend of mine once
3: who who watches the show once um, made an interesting tweet that said um, that the most unbelievable thing about succession is that none of the Roy kids have died because usually in these um, you know, Uh, legacy billionaire families there's always some sort of like freakish awful string of tragedies or you know um think about the kennedys or families like that uh, which i thought it was interesting and maybe you know something to think about that um you know logan he's reckless and and he wants his kids to feel pain he wants everybody to feel pain because he feels pain but um yeah i think there's a genuine just like you know i i know that you're in a really tough spot and i don't yeah. want you to die type yeah. of thing going on there um again like that might just be my like over investment in um you know how how trauma works and and plays out in everyday life and um psychology in general but i just i didn't see that as um something cynical you know i think the apologies are a way to say hey you know like don't don't do don't (laughs) jump
2: yeah i I wasn't i I think he i think he loves them in the best way that he can or knows how or is able but in in that whatever capacity that is he loves them to that degree um
1: i'm not even sure if i was looking at it in a cynical manner more of just like their relationship has evolved to this very strange point
3: i I understand yeah it it definitely has um yeah and i think logan's now at, at the point where it's like he's brought him enough to heal that he can like pump the brakes a little bit and try and you know make sure that his son doesn't kill himself
0: yeah, the dog metaphor pops up in this episode, too, because, of course, they do use dogs when they're hunting, and uh, Ken is sort of the dog who has to sniff out, right, the uh, the rats in, in Logan's midst. Um, I was also struck just in that scene where he's going through Roman's phone, how close Colin is to him and how close he is just basically in function to Colin right now. Um, how they're very similar Colin guys. Colin is his handler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's his sensei.
3: Oh my God. Creepy dude. Yeah. Yeah. Logan is, um, I mean, Kendall's being watched very closely
0: for sure. I also just thought just then Gabby, when you were talking about, um, uh, rich doomed families of the, um, uh, the Hunter Biden profile. Right. Right. From, like a month ago, it's like my first reaction <laughs> after reading that was like, can you even understand the Hunter Biden profile if you haven't seen succession? Um, because it was just, yeah, incredibly strong Kendall Roy energy we've been going on for a while do we want to go around and do final thoughts
2: i was curious if we kind of came to any consensus or i mean i guess there's not really consensus necessarily to be had but like what is going on with logan like do we think something is going on either medically or related to the med side effects or i think like all of the above basically i I mean
3: yeah Similar to the first season, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, yeah that's what it, I It's thinking. hard to tell.
1: Yeah, but I keep it's, going it's vague. He, he does look so much healthier, though. And that's the he thing does. that keeps throwing me off is that he has so much more energy in this we season than he did last to, season. You know, right, saying, yeah. right, right, right.
2: But, but the point, the thing, I mean, I don't think they would have included the scene with the doctor were it not significant of something. I also appreciate the
3: doctors, the same one from season one, because that's exactly, you know, how it works in that world. <laughs> your, your house doctor.
2: Um, right.
3: Yeah. No, there's definitely something going on there, I think. And I think it's important to remind us of that because he literally had a brain aneurysm like six months ago. So, and he's 80 and so, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think that's just another ongoing tension, the the looming mortality and aging and, you know, the oxida- oxidizing of the body and so forth.
2: Right, I guess I, I just mean more spe- specifically like playing a de- direct role in his uh, uh, newly twisted um, games that he likes to play with his staff, but... Like you said, I mean, it's all above. We don't know, but something's going on. So,
1: I mean, my read of it is just given how much more energy he seems to have, and how it's so starkly different from how sort of cloudy he seemed season one. Is that yes, he's he's clearly still ill, but he's getting better. But clear, but he's also on some sort of medication that is driving him to make these sort of really questionable leadership decisions. That was my takeaway he's from that. He's definitely
3: first. he's definitely more paranoid because of of the meds banjo.
1: Yeah. And I and I think even like uh, Jerry and Carolina whispering on the plane and he's like what is this? Like clearly they knew they could have gotten away with that before and he wouldn't have taken any notice, but now he he's really on his guard in a way like why would he have any reason to be that paranoid? Before that moment. I mean obviously you have the Pierce thing going on. But there's no sort of like. Direct issue in that moment.
2: Yeah. I guess my only other lingering thought. Is like why isn't Marsha there. I mean. And there's no exact answer. But um, she seems to have taken a. Step down. In terms of. Logan's confidants. um, From season one. Uh, otherwise I think if it were season one she'd be at the retreat But
1: so I noticed something strange on the HBO press site when I was pulling photos the other day and that's that there is a photo from this episode of Kendall and Marsha talking and clearly it's like either a deleted scene or something that's going to come later that was you know moved around but I'm not sure like Marsha there's something weird going on with Marsha
0: She's got her own game. You get, like, a, a, a
1: really quick snap of her, like, at the airport hangar. And if it's just the fact that, you know, the actress is busy, because I know, I, I believe she's on Rami as well. Like, why would she even have been there shooting scenes?
0: Uh, Julie, did you have any other uh, final thoughts?
1: Honestly, my, the one thing, I love the little scene between Laird and Logan when Laird's, like, I hate to be a party pooper, but I have poop. <laughs> like, it's such a ridiculously random scene, and it's that's what sets logan off and he screams like you know this is supposed to be choreographed that that is choreographed as a dog getting fucked on roller skates like they really gave him some spectacular lines this episode
0: choice lines shout out to laird
1: imagine being paid to just scream fuck that much i truly cannot
3: (laughs) um Um, i like danny houston saying i've overthrown governments and burned villages for you just a line that he could only deliver like that it was so like beautiful but saying something you know that obviously belies that but um yeah i just want to shout out to him because every time he's on screen he's
1: just totally magnetic he's perfectly oily
0: very oily um, well, I wanted to shout out a couple of quick pieces of writing about the show that I liked. Um, one of them was not directly about succession, but um, Megan Greenwell, uh, the former, now former editor in chief for Deadspin.com, um, wrote a piece, um, uh, her last piece for the site, about. Uh, Her experience with the uh, new management at Deadspin, uh, where the uh, former Gawker sites are just, you know, kind of kicked around, hoping that the next leap will be the leap home uh, for whatever uh, private equity vultures they end up with. Um, But uh, Megan Greenwell used the uh, Vulture episode and the experience of the uh, sort of vulture staff with Roman and Kendall as a sort of... um, as a sort of device in this piece that i thought was really interesting and spoke to um, how the show resonates with certain realities in the media world and then there was another piece um, for the passion Weiss blog um, that i liked uh, by evan mcgarvey and there was just a line at the very end um, that i wanted to bring in which was uh, a reference to uh, mad men um, and there's a Uh, a line by Miss Blankenship in Mad Men, the uh, uh, blind secretary who I think says to Peggy at one point, it's a business of sadists and masochists and you know which one you are. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. She's an astronaut. But that's it. Uh, Julie, uh, we can find you on Twitter, I think, and you are writing regular recaps of the show for Harper's Bazaar. That is correct. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Julie. This was this was a great discussion. I'm glad we I'm glad we got to chat uh, for this long. Thank you for
1: having me. I really was a privilege to talk about this specific episode. Julie, you want
2: to give us your handle really quickly? Oh, sure. It's at Julie Coson at Twitter. Perfect. Thank you so
3: much, Julie, Thanks. and thank you for listening to us and being a supporter. We really appreciate it.
1: Oh my gosh, yeah, I can keep it up.
3: <laughs> You're obviously a, a very, very pure fan. It's easy
1: to it's easy to glean. I think my colleagues are just glad I'm not screaming about it in the office as much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Alright, to everybody listening, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Cheers.